الحمد لله الحمد لله حمدا كثيرا طيبا مباركا فيه مباركا عليه كما يحب ربنا ويرضى جل جلاله وعم نواله والصلاة والسلام على سيد الحبيب المصطفى صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا إلى يوم الدين أما بعد قال الله تبارك وتعالى في القرآن المجيد والفرقان الحميد ظهر الفساد في البر والبحر بما كسبت أيدي الناس ليذيقهم بعض الذي عملوا وقال تعالى ينصركم الله فلا غالب لكم وإن يخذلكم فمن ذا الذي ينصركم من بعده وقال تعالى أم حسبتم أن تدخلوا الجنة ولما يأتكم مثل الذين خلوا من قبلكم مستهم البأساء والضراء وزلزلوا وزلزلوا حتى يقول الرسول والذين آمنوا معه والذين آمنوا معه متى نصر الله ألا إن نصر الله قريب وقال تعالى وَلَقَدْ نَصَرَكُمُ اللَّهُ بِبَدْرٍ وَأَنْتُمْ أَذِلَّهُ فَاتَّقُوا اللَّهَ لَعَلَّكُمْ تَشْكُرُونَ Sadaq Allah Al-Azim My dear respected brothers and sisters, medics, whatever you are here, mashallah, it's nice to have medics as opposed to computer science guys all the time. No offense to anybody. It's just normally whenever you ask a Muslim, what are you doing? He says, I'm doing computer science. Right. I don't know if that's the easy way out. Or we do need computer guys, but... But then you don't want the other extreme either. Where in America, where I was there for a number of years, every hospital that you go to, there has to be a Dr. Hussein or a Dr. Khan there. Right. And every Muslim, well, especially the Indian-Pakistani parents, they want their children to be a, a doctor or a liar. I mean, the Indian Pakistanis will understand that. They, they change everything from Honda, it becomes Honda. Right? So doctor becomes doctor, and lawyer becomes a liar. It's really sad. Any liars here? <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> I guess it's a serious subject. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give you barakah in whatever you're doing. May Allah give us all good intentions in what we're doing. I think that's the most important thing. So whether you're being a doctor or whatever, uh, Allah give us a good intention. I had a friend of mine who also became a doctor. We, did, we memorized the Quran together uh, at the madrasa, at the seminary. And then he went on to become a doctor. He went on to become a medical doctor at, U at Liverpool University. But I remember when uh, seeing him uh, afterwards, he said, uh, he said to me, um, I'm going to specialize in tropical medicine. I said, why tropical medicine? He says, well, much of our problems in the world where our Muslims, uh, Muslims live, they're kind of in tropical climate. So this is just uh, an additional specialization so that I can do khidmah. I can, I can be of service to our believers, uh, to our Muslims around the world, and people in general. Uh, but that, that's essentially what we're speaking about, to have a good intention in whatever you're doing. When you have a good intention in what you're doing, your, your work is filled with barakah. Because at the end of the day, for us, intention is more important than anything else. I think based on that, let's just explore one other idea. There are, uh, if, if we understand success, right? 
I mean, everybody sitting here, I mean, if you're in King's College, I mean, I'm assuming that you're here to be successful. You didn't just kind of stumble in here, right? You came here because you wanted to be successful, and uh, I think it's supposed to be a good university, right? SOAS is be probably better, but, you know, because that's where I am. Uh, but I'm sure it's a good university. And in order to be successful, I mean, you, you can look around, and you'll see people and you might think they're successful because they show the appearance of a successful person. You know, they, they seem to have everything going for them. They seem to uh, maybe be in the right places. Maybe they're dressed very well. Maybe they're driving something that looks successful. The way they're dressed, the way they've got their rings on their hands or uh, the, the, the kind of bags they're carrying, the kind of dress they're wearing, the coats that they're wearing, uh, the kind of gait and the walk in which they're walking. So they, they look like they're very successful. That's what you call a surah, surah of uh, success, right? Which is the picture, the image, right? The apparent facade of success. Now, to tell the truth, with regards to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, success is really something else. Success is that success which translates to success in the hereafter. And I think that is, if we keep that in focus, we will be successful. We will be truly successful. We could then have the best of this world and the best in the hereafter. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there's a very famous dua which is related by many of the collectors. It's a very famous dua. I'm sure many of us know it. Rabbana atina fid dunya hasana wa fil akhirati hasana wa qina adhab al-nar. Oh, our Lord, give us the best in this world. Hasana. Give us the good, the excellence in this world and in the hereafter as well. Because that's really what true success is. Because this life is, as we know, it's very short. I understand we're looking to the next 50, 60 years and we expect that we might die on average when we're about 70 or something because that's when people generally die, the average. But you all know and we know and we know this very, uh, you know, we know this as much as anybody else that we could die anytime. The real, the real life is the hereafter and that will be perpetual. There's a hadith that's related by Bukhari and Muslim from uh, Sahal ibn Sa'd al-Sa'idi radiyallahu an. He said that we were sitting with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and a person passed by and he looked successful. You know, in this day and age, you'd say that he went by in his, you know, he went by in his cor Corvette, you know, California Highway, roof, uh, you know, roof up with something next to him. Right? Um, stereotypical, isn't it? So he goes, you know, just success. You can just see it reeking. I mean, I remember once I was at this program and uh, we were staying at the hotel and we went to the store and there was one of the Muslim guys, one of the Muslim guys, and you could just tell in the way he was doing everything, he just thought he was it. That's something we only use here in England. He thought he was it, right? But really, the way he pulled out his wallet and it was this really special wallet, the way he pulled out his credit card and it was some kind of platinum credit card. And you could just tell with the rings on his finger. And you know, it's really funny with some of the Indians is that when they become wealthy, suddenly you start seeing all this gold on them, right? The men, it's just kind of really weird. Uh, and it's generally, the Hindus do this a lot because Muslims are not allowed to have gold. Men, men are not allowed to have gold, the women can. Uh, but then you see the men doing this as well. It's kind of the sign, one ring, second ring, third ring, B.A. Barakas kind of... I don't even know if you know B.A. Barakas. <laughs> right? Um, so, one is, as you say, the, the surah, 
the surah, the, the outward facade of success, and that's not really true success. So such a person went by, and the Prophet ﷺ asked about him, he said, what do you think of this person? What's your opinion about him? So that they responded that, you know, he's such a person that when he speaks, people will listen to him. If he goes and proposes somewhere, people will give them his daughter. They'll be more than happy to do it. He can go in anywhere and get a daughter. If he puts a word in, that word will be taken with value. So if he intercedes for you, if he, if he puts a word in, you will get into that place wherever you're trying to get into. The Prophet ﷺ just remained silent. Then there's another person that, that went by and this person apparently was opposite to this person. He seemed to have disheveled hair, his, his, his clothing was all over the place, he seemed very poor, he just seemed just like an extremely destitute individual and the Prophet ﷺ asked about him, what do you think about him? Now remember this is all going by the outward appearance isn't it? So he asked about him and the people said, oh he's such a person if he speaks people won't even want to take him seriously, they won't listen to him. If he goes and asks for somebody's hand in marriage, they probably won't give them his, their daughters. If he goes and intercedes and puts, tries to put a word in for you, they'll, they won't accept it. And then the Prophet ﷺ, he made his observation. After they had made their apparent observation, their exterior, external, their observation on the external aspect of things, the way people deal with these things in the world, he made his spiritual and esoteric uh, um, observation. He said that this, this first man, if there was a whole world full of them, he wouldn't be as much of a value as the second man. And there's another version which says that there are such people like this who if they swore, uh, this is a hadith of Muslim, لَوْ أَقْسَمَ عَلَى اللَّهِ لَأَبَرَّهَا رُبَّ أَشْعَثَ أَغْبَرَ مَطْرُودٍ مِّنَ الْأَبْوَابِ لَوْ أَقْسَمَ عَلَى اللَّهِ لَأَبَرَّهَا which means that there are certain individuals who are totally disheveled, you would, you would throw them out of your house if they came to your house, right? They're just in such a state, but their connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is such that had, if they swore an oath on Allah, Allah would fulfill that oath for them. I mean, these are very rare individuals, but if they said, Wallahi, it's going to rain today, Allah will send the rain because He loves them so much. Not because they control Allah, but it's because they, Allah loves them so much. Now, let's go back to the time of Rasulullah See, the whole focus about when, this question about when is the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala going to come. I think it's very important for us as Muslims today, especially living in this time and age when we see so many problems, which we seem to feel as though they are only to do with Muslims. I mean, not just the man-made problems, not just the conspiracy theories, but when, we, when you also look at natural problems, like, uh, I mean, until a few years ago, you, you saw that most of the earthquakes were to do with Muslim countries, right? It happened in Iran, it happened in Turkey, it happens in India, it happens in you know, mostly Muslim countries until it happened in New Zealand, right? Then the Muslims probably thought, well, oh, it's not just us, right? So when you talk about natural phenomena, natural problems, calamities, and you look at other calamities, it's just like we, we, we're on the receiving end at this point in time. However, if, you, if, if we're going to judge, if we're going to judge situations based on our lifespan and only things that we have witnessed and only those things that have happened and occurred during our life, then that's not a very good way of looking at it. At the end of the day, we as human beings, our Adamic race, we are part of a very long, long tradition. 
And if we look at just from 1400 years ago to what has happened, there's no time in half an hour here to explain the ups and downs and, and, uh, and what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has done for this ummah and where this ummah had gone and the precarious edges that it had gone to. I mean, for example, the ulama mentioned that there are two individuals who have safeguarded this ummah at a time when it was a critical, uh, such a critical situation that this ummah could have been destroyed. Islam could have been effaced of the face of this earth. And it could have, it could have just, just been totally wiped out. There were two individuals. The two that they mention, one is Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu an. And these are just the highlights. These are just the major issues. What happened after the Prophet sallallahu passed away, and even during the final days, the final time of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, all of these imposters came up. They wanted to call, they wanted a piece of the pie as such. They thought this is a great way to attract attention, to get a following. So then you had all of these people. After the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam passed away, even more imposters, Musaylama, Ibn al-Kadhab Musaylama uh, from the Hanafiya tribe, he was, uh, he'd already started uh, declaring himself a prophet. So this corrupted a number of individuals, especially in the south of Arabia, there were a number of people, that, or a number of tribes rather, and in those days it wasn't individuals, because it wasn't a time of individualism, it was a time of tribalism, where one person uh, became a Muslim of the Aus or the Khazraj, the whole tribe followed. Even the Munafiqeen, they, you know, they had, they'd had to declare Islam uh, outwardly because it was a time when you just followed your leader, right? We no longer live in that time, right? Fathers and children, uh, mothers and daughters think so, totally differently, right? And they'll even argue about it. But in those days, it was different. So you have all these tribes that gave up the Islam in different ways. They, some, some said that we're just going to give up the religion completely. Others said that we will not give up the religion, but we won't pay zakat. So we'll kind of personalize it. We don't like zakat. We don't like paying. Okay, fine. We're not going to pay zakat. So we're going to personalize our religion, cut and chop it. Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu an sent Khalid bin Walid radiallahu an, and this was all dealt with. So this was a precarious time because had they been allowed, had these imposters uh, been allowed to succeed, then you would have had many, you, you know, Islam wouldn't have been the way it is today you know we would not have been sitting here and speaking about it that way possibly then later on there was another intellectual challenge again it was an intellectual challenge this was from the uh, philosophers this was from Hellenistic philosophy and this affected the ummah at that time it was Ahmad ibn Hanbal the great Imam who stood up and he managed to save God because all of the other ulama they either had to just say what the what the king wanted to hear to be to safeguard their life or they were killed Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal was the only one uh, rahimahullah may Allah shower him with his with his mercy he was the only one that stood up to this he got flogged for it he got beaten for it but had he not stood up that way the the, the common people would may have lost their faith as well at that time and they would have gone into this uh, this religion of uh, m that is more based on reason uh, only as opposed to uh, spirituality and uh, the divine understanding the divine message from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala again it's not a time to go into those in detail but there's been huge problems if you look at Masjid al-Aqsa we're better off today than it was before Salahuddin rahimahullah manages uh, managed to liberate that place for about 80 to 90 years not a salat was performed in the in the Masjid al-Aqsa there were all sorts of things going on around there they used to use the side parts. I mean, I visited, they used to use that marwaniya, the side place to put horses and pigs and other things in. There was a cross on top of the Qubba to Sahra. There was not a Salat, not an Adhan, nothing. People had been massacred and killed. I remember when Lane Poole says that when the Christians, uh, when, the, when the Crusaders uh, overcame Jerusalem, uh, the, the, the carnage that they, uh, the, the carnage that, uh, that took place was, was such that the horses were knee high in blood. And I just couldn't understand this. How can you have so much blood that 
that your horses are knee high in there. Only when I visited Jerusalem that could I get an understanding, understanding of this. And the reason for this is that the streets there, it's still an old city. The great thing about Jerusalem today is that when you go into old Jerusalem, you actually go in from the Babu Shamiya, uh, you know, from the Damascus Gate or from some of the other gates. The Damascus Gate is the most popular one. You go in there and it's literally a walled city. And then a masjid is within an enclosure as well. And the streets are narrow. The streets are narrow. A, a normal car probably could not drive through there. Now you can understand how the, the blood must have been and how many people were killed. As opposed to that Salahuddin, after 80 to 90 years when he liberated, liberated that place, it was a totally different scene when he liberated that place. People were allowed to go. It's not a time to speak about Salahuddin, rahimahullah, but may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless him and may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give the ability to the women of today to be able to produce Salahuddin's for us. That is extremely important. People who can rise up and, and do things in, in the correct way uh, to, uh, to uh, to give elevation and uh, to the Muslims. So when you look at our history, it's extremely important for us to look at history. So when you look at history, then you, you see another part of our history. You see the Tatars when they just swept through all of these cities. Bukhara, Sam you know, Bukhara Samarkand, Herat, all of these great cities that had produced all of the great scholarship. You know, today we owe it to the Central Asian area where today you hardly hear about any scholars. Your Bukhari came from there. He came from Bukhara, which is in Uzbekistan. Your, your, your Tirmidhi came from Uzbekistan. Tirmidhi is at the border of Uzbekistan and Afghanistan today, right? Your, your Muslim, your Imam Muslim and Naysaburi, he came from Iran today, the north of Iran. Abu Dawood the Sijistani, he came from Sistan, Sijistan, which is again kind of southeast of uh, Iran, border of Afghanistan. This is the area where some of your greatest scholars have come from. I mean, name me any scholar, there's so few that came from Sham and uh, relatively speaking with the big names that we know about. Ajib, Hakim and Naysaburi, another one from Nishapur. I mean, Darami, all of these great, 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 great scholars. I mean, there are just so many that we know about, so many we don't know about. However, when the Tatars came down in their carnage, they swept through that area such that when you had a whole city bustling with maybe 700,000, you know, 700, 400, 300,000 people, they erased everything to the ground such that in one place, 17 people came out of the rubble. Can you imagine that? We haven't had any mass massacres like that, alhamdulillah. I'm not trying to say that the massacres of today we don't need to worry about. I'm just saying that we need to do something about it, but not in a depressed way. Because when you try to do something when you're depressed, you don't do it correctly. You don't do it rightly. Because we don't know what we're doing. We're not in control of our senses. Our reason needs to be, our reason and our spirituality needs to be playing its part. And we need to put things in an understanding of what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants from us. We need to try to realize what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants from us and why this is happening and I think this is the most important thing so I don't want to paint a picture of too much optimism or too much pessimism I don't want to paint a picture of too, uh, such despair that it's all lost because it's not there will be ups and downs we mustn't th think and there's a lot of people who think that this is the end of it if you think this is the end of it, then look at what Ibn al-Athir says. Ibn al-Athir is a very balanced historian. But when he talks about the way the Tatars came through and ravaged, the, the, he, he, his voice is shaking. You can see it in his writing. If you were there, you would be seeing, he would probably be crying. His voice is shaking. That's Ibn al-Athir, a very balanced individual who knows how to write. And he's one of the great historians. This is the case with many of our historians when you look at all of the Ibn Kathir and all of these other great scholars and when they write about these things. So you think that this is bad? What we're having today no it's not 
It's bad, it is bad, but it's not bad relatively speaking. That is why you must realize that we must have our hopes in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that if we do the right thing, Allah will bring us out of this. And that is what I want to get to. If we do the right thing, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will bring us out of it because we've been at worse situations. We've been in worse times and circumstances. When you thought that it's going to die, it's going to end. Today, we are having many, we, we have many challenges in front of us, both ideological, both uh, in terms of just massacres. I mean, look at what's going on in Burma, which is quite crazy. Syria, subhanAllah. I mean, I, I don't know how much to tell you about Syria when I was studying there. It was so tense. I mean, only the foreigners, right? Only the foreigners, if you're bold enough, can, can, you know, can live a decent life there. Can you imagine living in a regime when you don't know that the third person with you is a mukhabara? Right, which means uh, 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 a spy. It could be your own brother, it could be your own family. Every third person, they said, Wallahu alam. Obviously, not something we can substantiate. But it was crazy because we would, we would speak to somebody about something that just bordered on the political. And they would say, Ya, ya akhi, hadha al amr la yuhimmuna. This would be their answer. Oh, brother, this, this matter does not, this matter does not, it does not concern us. Of course, it concerns you. But this is the way they could get out of it because I could be a mukhabara for them. Right? I could be somebody spying on them. Such great individuals. Believe me, Syria is just such a beautiful place. I, I could say, I mean, I've traveled to Syria. At that time, I traveled to Jordan. I traveled to Beirut. I, you know, I've traveled to Egypt. I've traveled to many Muslim countries. Believe me, the, 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 the Noor in Syria was amazing. And you can only put this down to the fact that Rasulullah said, Allahumma barik lana fi shamina. I haven't been to Yemen, but I would expect to see sim something similar in Yemen. Because the Prophet made dua for these two places. I mean, subhanAllah, at that time, I don't know how it is now, but Damascus was a very a small city. You could travel around it. We used to go to study in the Jami', uh, in, in the jami uh, uh, Al-Umawi, in the great Umayyad Masjid where Isa alayhi salam is supposed to come, with Shaykh Abdul Razak al-Halabi. That's where we were studying, right? Reading our Quran to him. Great scholars, the Masajid. I mean, you won't find this in most of the other Muslim countries. The Masajid have lectures. The Masajid have durus going on every day after Fajr, after Isha, after the different Salat. It's just an amazing place to be. The people generally are decent. The pe people are very kind, very, very generous, soft-hearted people. I mean, you, you could tell this. I mean, at that time, I guess it was really good because you didn't have a pizza hut there. You didn't have Coca-Cola there. You had nothing. The only Coca-Cola or any foreign brand that you could find was actually those smuggled in from, uh, from Beirut. Right? It was, uh, that was it. It was just like, it seemed so backwards, but it had been preserved. The Iman had been preserved, it seems. I mean, subhanAllah, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make it easy for them. But these people, they've risen. And inshallah, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make them, grant them great success. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant them uh, great assistance. Mata Nasrullah, Allah inna Nasrullahi qareeb. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that the Nasr and the, the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is extremely close. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in the Quran, ظهر الفساد في البر والبحر بما كسبت أيدي الناس ليذيقهم بعض الذي عملوا. Essentially, that's what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says very clearly. There is fasad, there is corruption that has become prevalent in, in the Bar and the Bahr, both in the oceans and on the land, in the form of casinos, in the form of harams taking place. The Muslims are involved in it as much as anybody else. I mean, you look, subhanAllah, in Palestine, I mean, I hate to say this, but Israel is not allowed to, uh, from the last time that, that, that uh, an Israeli Arab Muslim, one of our brothers would come to America, right, who lives in Israel proper, Right? He's got an Israeli passport. He mentioned that it's illegal in Israel to have a casino. The casino is in the, the, the Muslim land. 
right? It, it, it may be frequented by, by, by them, but subhanAllah, uh, and again, you know, may Allah help our Palestinian brothers as well, because I'm sure this is not what they all want, right? This probably happens, I'm sure this is not in Gaza, this is probably in the West Bank, right? And I'm not sure if it's still there. But you've got these things happening, whether it's on land or whether it's in the ocean, it doesn't matter. These things, we're all part of it. I'm part of it. Everybody is part of it. I mean, when you look around, we don't, we don't see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala anymore. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is there. I mean, there was a battle that took place after Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa time. The Sahaba was still there. Now, this was such a battle with the Romans where the Romans were, were outdoing the Muslims by a huge proportion. There was, there was, there was no match. Right? There was no match. And normally it mentions about the, the Arabs, uh, especially the Sahaba and the Arabs of the time. They, uh, they were very interesting. In the middle of the battle, when it would be at its most fiercest moments, right? In, at its most fiercest moments, you know what they would do? They would start reading poetry. They would start singing poetry. This was to, uh, to, to raise their morale, to spur them on, to give them some bravery. SubhanAllah, this is what the Prophet ﷺ himself did. Do you know that when the Prophet ﷺ, during the battle of uh, Hunayn, when, uh, after, after the conquest of Makkah, when the Prophet ﷺ went to the Hawazin, south of Makkah, Mukarramah, and there the, the, some of the Muslims, a lot of Muslims had just come into Islam after the conquest, and they all went. Many of them were not very strong yet. These were all people who just newly entered into Islam. So as they got there, they were thinking, A'jabatum kathratum, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says. Their hugeness in number, their abundance made them feel conceited. Oh, today we're going to walk over these people. You know, we're going to trample them. I mean, in Battle of Badr, we were 313 compared to 1,000. In the Battle of Uhud, we were 1,000 compared to two or 3,000. I mean, subhanAllah, we were this much in this battle, we were this much in this battle. This one, we're going to walk over these people. This is going to be a walkover. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't like that. Allah wants your reliance to be on Him because He is the one who we are slaves of. And once we lose that servitude, even if part of us lose that servitude, we're in for it. That's the problem. We all bear the consequences of this. That's why Amr al-Ma'ruf nahi al-Munkar. Mutual advice, mutual, uh, mutual counseling is extremely important because that is what keeps us all proper. So in that one, what happened is suddenly as they got into this valley, they, they were suddenly attacked with, uh, with, uh, with arrows and the people of Hawazin, they were, they were very, very good marksmen. And the, the, the Muslims just dispersed. They, they scattered. But the Prophet ﷺ with a band of individuals, Abu Sufyan ibn Harth, who was his cousin brother, and Abbas who was his uncle, they were the only ones. And Abbas who is trying to pull him back. The Prophet ﷺ is not even on a horse. He's actually on a mule, which is not a battle animal. But it just shows his bravery. And he is going closer and closer. And he is saying, I'm a prophet that does not lie. I am the son of Abdul Muttalib. I am not a prophet that lies, I'm the son of Abdul Muttalib. This was just coincidentally from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that this came onto his tongue. Prophet was not a poet, he was not a poet, but this was something that came on his tongue. Ali radiallahu anhu used to say, Anallahi sammatni ummi haydara, what do you say? He would, in the middle of the battle, he would say that I am the one who my mother has called me the Haydar, the fearsome lion. She's named me the fearsome lion. Right? The, like, the, like the lion of the jungles that is very, very dreadful to look at. This is what he would say in the middle of a battle. Then the others as well, they had these amazing poetry that they would say in the middle of a battle just to spur them up. However, in this one battle, in this particular battle, it became such that they were surrounded. They were surrounded by this enemy that was 
a multiple of the number that the Muslims were in. Multiple of that number. And they, they said this is when it was such a bad state. Look what, look what he explains. The, the, the narrator, he says this was such a bad state that we forgot our poetry. That, 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 is what, that is what he says. We forgot our poetry. That is how bad it was. And everybody was just, Ya Rabba Muhammad. Ya Rabba Muhammad. O Lord of Muhammad. That's what came to our tongue. And suddenly we see that from the heavens, the angels start to descend. We see the angels start to descend. And that's it. They, they, were, they were saved. I mean, it's a long story, but again, we're just, we're just scanning these, these issues today. The, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to help, He can help in the middle of something like this. Can you imagine? It was so bad that He says that, Ansani, you know, it, it made us forget our poetry. How bad could it be? But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala took them out of it. That's on a, I mean, there's many incidents like this. Many incidents like this where the Prophet prayed and things happened. That is on a, on, you can say, on a macro level. If we look on a, on a micro level, we've got examples. I'll give you one simple example, especially for our sisters here as well. Aisha radiallahu anha is, is, is washing the Prophet's hair. The Prophet always had long hair. He only shaved his hair, only had small hair when he went for Hajj or Umrah. Right, three or four times that he did that. All the other times, he always had long hair, up to his shoulder sometimes. Aisha radiallahu anha used to sit there and comb it. She used to wash it. On this occasion, what's related is that there was a, a sahabiyah whose name was Khawla bintu Tha'laba. Khawla bintu Tha'laba. Her husband came, one day her husband had some, had some illness or some problem. She was a very, she was old. They were both old, right, in an advanced age. But she, uh, she was a very beautiful woman. And her husband, uh, he unfortunately had developed some kind of illness. He called her to him and she refused. She just didn't feel like it. So what he said to her, uh, uh, he, because she was refusing, so he said to her, Anti ummi. You are to me like my mother's back. You're just like my mother's back to me. Just like my mother is haram for me, and my mother's back is haram for me, that I can't go to my mother, uh, mother you know, in a sexual way, right? You're like that. Now, this was a way of talaq, of divorce in the jahiliyyah. That would be another way that talaq would be given during jahiliyyah. And this was such a bad talaq, such a bad divorce that you couldn't, it was irreconcilable. It was irrevocable. You could not come back together again. That was the jahiliyyah tradition. She was extremely perturbed by this. Her husband was Aws ibn Samit. And she, she said, well, what's the hukum now? He says, well, you know, I can't come close to you now. You know, we're haram on each other. We're not married anymore. He says, what's going to happen to our children? We need, our, you know, we need to be with each other. And he, he felt really bad because this just came out of his tongue because, you know, she was depriving him. And when men are sexually deprived, something happens, right? So he felt extremely great nadama, right? Just in case women don't know men, just, just explaining, right? <laughs> so anyway. So he felt extremely uh, remorseful, very regretful. And um, what happened then is, uh, he says, well, that's it. So she goes, she says, I'm going to go to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa She went to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa Now look how casual this is. You go to a scholar, his wife is there. I mean, this is a woman who's going, his wife is there washing his hair. Aisha radiallahu anha, she's washing one side, it was a lot of hair, right? One side of his hair. And she's listening. And as she's washing um, uh, the hair, and then, you know, probably combing it and grooming it, uh, uh, Khawla comes and she says, this is what happened. You know, we've been together for so long, we've got young children, and uh, I, I, was, I was a very wealthy woman, I was a very good woman, I had a great family with me as well, and now, when all my wealth has been spent, 
right? And I spent it on my family, right? She'd been married for her, uh, she'd been married as being a very good woman from a very good family, a very wealthy woman, and so on, very beautiful woman. He said, now that all of that has gone, my family, the one that used to support me, they no longer are there anymore. They've all, you know, they've all dispersed or they've died out or whatever the case is. I need my husband. Can you give me a fatwa? What is the hukum for me? The Prophet ﷺ said, Harimti alayhi. You are haram on him. She says, please, I mean, what is this? I can't live like this. She said, harimti alayhi. The Prophet ﷺ just gave her the answer. Because until now, there was no hukum. There was no ruling that had come on this particular type of divorce. Uh, sorry, not divorce. This particular type of statement. It's called vihar in Arabic. It's called vihar. Right? Vihar and ila. These are two types where you say these weird things. I'm, I'm not going to come close to you anymore. Or you're like my mother. Yani in terms of not me being haram for you. Or you being haram for me. Right? If somebody says that, the hukum now is different. Right? And we need to thank khawla for it. Radiallahu anha. But... She just kept, uh, and she's, she's, now, uh, she's now saying, but look, it's, it's this situation. I mean, I've got my children, that they, I, I need them. I need, I need my husband together to be with me. Otherwise, we're going to both be wasted in this world. It's not going to work for me and everything. And the Prophet ﷺ just told her, look, you're, you're haram on her. You're haram on your husband. You're haram on your husband. You're prohibited on your husband. And then she kept talking to the Prophet ﷺ. She's like, you need to do something for me. Look at it again. Right? Look at the mas'ala again. You know, look at it again. In, in, there must be something about it. So eventually, the Prophet then she began to scream. She began to shout. She says, I, uh, she, she says I'm going to complain to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Ashku Allah. I'm going to complain to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I'm going to complain to him of my poverty, of my, uh, my inability, my weakness, that I can't live without my husband like this. I mean, subhanAllah, look at... This is on a micro level. An individual wants something to happen and look what happens. So she's like this with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And she started looking up to the heavens. And you can just expect she's probably went, Ya Allah, this is... And she started making dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As she started making dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and she said, Allahumma ashku ilayk. Allahumma fa'anzil ala lisani nabiyyik. Look at her dua. She says, Ya, ya Allah, reveal something on your messenger. Reveal a hukum on your messenger, reveal something on your messenger. Look at the persistence that she's speaking with. So, Aisha radiallahu anha then got up, she'd finished that one side, and she went to the other side to do the other hand. She wasn't paying attention fully, she says. Right? She says, I was listening to some of it, I wasn't listening, you know, I was listening to half of it or whatever, I wasn't listening properly. But then what happened is, she again started talking to Rasulullah Ya Rasulullah, look at the matter again. Consider it again. And then Aisha radiallahu anha saw that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa dropped his head and wahi, the revelation had started to descend. She said, uh, she said to her, listen, take it easy now. Can you not see what's happening to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa He's receiving a revelation. When the wahi finished, when the revelation was completed, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa raised his head and he said, he said to her, Ud'i zawjak. Go, 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 go and call your husband. Go and call your husband because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has just revealed some verses for you. Has just revealed verses for you. And what were the verses? قَدْ سَمِعَ اللَّهُ قَوْلَ الَّتِي تُجَادِلُكَ فِي زَوْجِهَا وَتَشْتَكِي إِلَى اللَّهِ وَاللَّهُ يَسْمَعُ تَحَاوُرَكُمَا إِنَّ اللَّهَ سَمِيعٌ بَصِيرٌ what is, the, what is the verse? Allahu tujadiluka fi zawjiha. The way Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I mean, this is a verse, many verses when they start, they start off, Ya ayyuhal ladheena amanu, O people who believe, Ya ayyuhal nas, 
اتقوا ربكم سبح لله يسبح لله سبح اسم ربك الاعلى هل اتاك حديث الغاشيه this one starts قد سمع الله Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has certainly heard. Indeed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has heard. Qawla, qad sami'a Allah, qawla allati tujadiluka fi zawjiha. And now, you see, the Quran is based on brevity. Quran is very concise. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't waste his words. But here, he's saying, indeed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has heard the one Look at the way he describes her. The one who was arguing with you. He's heard the speech of the one who has been arguing with you about her husband. Can you imagine what must have been in her heart that she, she argued like this and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals a verse about it and then he says that Allah has indeed heard. And Aisha radiallahu says, I was listening, I was half listening, I wasn't really paying attention. Glorified be Allah that he heard all of these things. He is hearing everybody's everybody's statements. Whenever we make a statement, he hears all of this. So, And she was complaining to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was listening. Look how much detail is being provided. I mean, look how much detail is being provided so that it remains for eternity in the, in the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was listening to your conversation. He was listening to your conversation. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the all listening one. So if a verse could come down, if help from Allah could come down for an individual, a woman who wants her husband back, and she's there, she's saying, Rasulullah, look at it again. She could have just gone back, okay, khalas, finish. You've given me a fatwa, I'm going. We need to thank her because then the hukum that came down is that when a person does this, they have to make a kafara. They have to give an expiation, a penalty, and then they can be back with their wives again. It's not like the time of jahiliyyah. So that the jahiliyyah uh, time custom was then abrogated due to the benefit of this single woman. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals this description about her. So Aisha radiallahu anha praises, praises her a lot. Finally, I just want to mention a final story because we don't have the time. It's been a very, very short moment. But the verses that I read, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, if, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is to help you, then nobody can overcome you. There is nobody, there is not an individual to overcome you. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala helps you, but if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is to, uh, is to uh, humiliate you, where he is to take away his assistance from you, then Then who is there that can help you after Allah? Who is the one that can help you then besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then says, أَمْ حَسِبْتُمْ أَن تَدْخُلُوا الْجَنَّةِ وَلَمَّا يَأْتِكُمْ مَثَلُ الَّذِينَ خَلَوْا مِنْ قَبْلِكُمْ That, do you really think that you will enter into paradise? Whereas events like those, examples like those that have taken place among the people of the past, they haven't occurred to you yet. When you hear about, when you heard about individuals who are, who, whose bones would be separated from their flesh and they would, that would still not detract them from their religion, who would be persecuted, sought in half, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in other surahs and verses in the Qur'an, 
those kind of things haven't occurred to you yet. We're not giving you guarantee of peace in this world. Essentially, Allah is saying, these things are going to happen to you. As another verse in Baqarah says, وَلَنَبْلُوَنَّكُمْ بِشَيْءٍ مِّنَ الْخَوْفِ وَالْجُوعِ وَنَقْسِمْ مِّنَ الْأَمْوَالِ وَالْأَنْفُسِ وَالثَّمَرَاتِ We're going to certainly test you. وَلَنَبْلُوَنَّكُمْ With the noon thaqila, which is for emphasis. We're going to certainly, certainly test you, test you, give you trial. Just a bit of fear in your wealth, in your children, in your crops, in things that are important to you. But Give glad tidings to those who are patient. Who when some kind of calamity afflicts them, they say, Inna lillah wa inna ilayhi raji'oon. They say, we are for Allah, we are and we're going to return to Him. These are the people whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends His blessings upon and His mercy and they are the most successful ones. I'll give you one last story, right? One final story, which is, I think is very important. It's about a tabi'i. A tabi'i are those who came after Rasul, after the Sahaba. Malik ibn Dinar. Malik ibn Dinar. I mean, we, most of us would probably not consider ourselves to be as bad as him. And that's why I'm mentioning this story, because at the end of the day, individually, each one of us needs to become better people. How can we help? How can we expect the help from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when we live in haram all day long? When our eyes are watching the most haram things, how can we see Allah if at nighttime that's what we're watching? Where our minds are constantly thinking about gaining the haram, acquiring the haram, doing the haram. When our minds are polluted, our hearts are polluted. And this is a men, uh, you know, means of tawbah that I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give me and to give all of us so that we can make that change and we can attract some of the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Malik ibn Dinar, he says that I was such a bad person. I used to be drunk. I used to be a big, diso uh, a big disobedient individual. I used to oppress people. I used to, uh, I used to take people's rights. I used to take uh, uh, usury, I used to indulge my, I mean essentially I think he was in the exhortation racket, he used to beat people up, he used to get money off them, he used to give, give money on interest uh, and, and you know, you, you know the, the worst of the people that you can think about. And I used to do all of these things, so as I grew older I decided I should get married, right, and uh, I need to have children. So he said I found a wife, and I'm going to cut this very short, I said I found a wife and Allah gave me a daughter whose name was Fatima. And as Fatima was growing older, her love came into my heart even more. I used to love her to bits. I used to love her to bits. But the, there was a blessing about this daughter of mine. Because as she is growing older, I am becoming slightly more connected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he's saying. So he's really he's confessing his state. And then he says that uh, Fatima, she became two years old. And when she, uh, she used to come to me and I used to have a, a, you know, a glass of... Uh, beer or something, glass of wine in my hand, and she used to just come take it, and I loved her so much, and she knew it, and she used to take the glass and just spill it out. Right, and I never used to do anything, because it's something I wanted to do. It came to the age of three, and she passed away. And that gave me such a depression, and one day my shaitan, he says, shaitani, my shaitan told me that, you know, uh, to get out of this depression, you need to drink. Now, I mean, we can relate to this. I mean, this is what a lot of people go through today. They turn to drink because of depression. Right? He said, you're going to drink today. So he said, today I'm going to drink. So I started drinking and I drank and I drank. And I went into some kind of stupor, into, uh, uh, into some kind of hallucination or whatever it was. I saw all sorts of dreams. Finally, I saw that the world had changed around me. It was the day of judgment. The seas had become fire and people were all around. People were all around. Suddenly, I was called. 
Suddenly my name was called. And as soon as my name was called, just imagine this day, as soon as my name was called, everybody from around me just suddenly disappeared. And I found myself alone in this big maidan, in this big field or whatever, this big plain. And suddenly in front of me, I see this major, big, gigantic snake coming towards me. And I started to run. And I ran in the other direction. And there I saw this old, decent, sensible looking individual, but he looked very weak and old. I went up to this, I said, can you help me? The snake is going to go after me. He's going to, he's going to, he's going to get me. He says, I'm really sorry. I can't help you. I'm too weak. I've got no ability, but go in that direction. So I went in that direction. And there, as I run towards it, I suddenly see fire. I said, well, I'm going to jump into the fire. If I go that way, I'll be in the fire. If I go the back way, the, 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 the snake's going to get me. I quickly ran back to that man. That old man said, you need to help me. He says, look, I can't help you, but go in this other direction now. Go towards the hills. So he says there were hills on that direction. As I went towards the hills, on these hills, I suddenly noticed all of these young boys and girls. And as soon as I got closer, they were saying, Fatima, your dad's here. Fatima, your dad's here. So as, as I got there, suddenly my daughter came to me and I recognized her. And I recognized my three-year-old daughter. She came and she came and... She sat in my lap the way she used to do in the world. And I said to her, Ya Fatima, explain to me what's going on here. She said, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll take care of this. So what she did was, she, as the snake came closer, she, she, she pushed it out of the way and the snake disappeared. And I was surprised. And I said to her, Ya Fatima, what's happening? Who is that old man? He said, that old man are your good deeds. You don't have too many of them. You didn't really do much. You haven't built him up. That's why he's old, weak and frail. And he can't do anything for you today. What is that snake then? Those snake, that snake is your major deeds, are your, are, your, are your bad deeds, are your sins. That is what you, you nurtured. And th that, that is why they are after you. And he said, if it wasn't for you, and subhanAllah, look, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us children who can be our saviors for us. He said, if it wasn't for you, I would not have been successful on this day. And then suddenly he wakes up out of this nightmare, absolute nightmare. He wakes up and it's Fajr time. He, he takes a bath and he says, Wallahi, I'm going to make tawbah now. And he goes to the masjid. He goes to the masjid and actually... Uh, I missed one part out. His daughter, she said to him, when he sat her down, he said, what's all of this? He said, Alam amanu, and Basically, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying here, hasn't it come? Hasn't the time come for those who believe, who have, who have the belief of Allah in their heart, that their hearts succumb to this deen, to, to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for the fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Or are they going to be like the people of the past who a long time passed and their hearts just became hard? And believe me, this is what I feel that is happening today for us in, in, the, in, the, in, what we're, in the way we're living. Our hearts have become hard and we could be a source of problems for the Muslim brothers and sisters around the world. It could just be time before it happens to us. These people are essentially a shield for us and that's, we, that's why we must do everything that we can for our brothers in Syria and in, in, in Burma, in Palestine, everywhere else as well. So she mentioned the ayah. When I got up and I went to the masjid that day, maybe his first time in the masjid for a very long time, if ever, and he says, Ajib, the Imam was reading Surah Al-Hadid and this verse he was reading. After that, he became one of the greatest tabi'is. Malik ibn Dinar, you'll hear about him quite often. This story is actually related by Ibn Qudama al-Hanbali in his kitab al-Tawwabin, right? And, and then he would stand outside the masjid every day and he would try to uh, counsel people. He'd say, oh person, such and such a person, tub ilallah, go back to Allah. Oh such and such a person, go back to ilallah. That's why I want to say to all of us today, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala promises one thing. 
right? Allah promises one thing. He says that, you know, if you start committing sins and you start and they start piling up, right? So you've committed 20 sins, 30 sins, 40 sins, whatever it is, and they go up to the heavens and it fills up the earth with it. And then Allah says that if you come to me with tawbah, with repentance, I will forgive you. I will forgive you. How many are our sins? Enough to fill this theater? Right? How many of our sins? Allah is saying, if you fill the world with your sins, if you fill the, fill the heavens with your sins, I will forgive you because that's who I am. I, am, I have more mercy than your, than, than, than your mother has. Your mother only uses from the 1% of mercy that I've given in this world. I have the 99% of the mercy that I will treat you with. We need to make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We, we need to rectify ourselves. We need to make uh, repentance so that we become purer individuals. Then whatever we do will become more powerful. We can then avert the punishments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We can then help other people. And at the end of the day, we can complain about our, our rulers of the world and, and, and the Muslim and non-Muslim rulers. And we can speak about the Arab Spring and we can speak about the coming of Mahdi and we can speak about all of these things. But at the end of the day, it has to start from us because our death is closer to us than any Mahdi is, uh, than, than any Qiyamah is because our Qiyamah is when we die. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the ability to correct ourselves first and to really focus and to avoid the haram and to make tawbah for our sins that we have committed in the past. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us barakah in the things that we're doing, in the projects that we're doing. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless all the brothers here who've been to Syria and uh, who've, uh, you know, mashallah, I was really happy to hear that, you know, you've been five times, uh, well, at least uh, Brother Shafi. He's been five times, so I mean, I'm sure there's others who've been as well. That's really amazing for me. I'd love to go back. You know, I, I really missed that place. After I finished studying there and I came back, I just haven't been able to go back. Inshallah, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala open it up very quickly and make it one of the best places. Inshallah. Barakallahu feekum. Jazakumullah khair. Wa akhiru da'wana anilhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.